You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from the 6th of February. And on the show today... As the traffic continues to drive everyone slightly mad, we spoke to a startup who might have come up with a solution. The CEO and founder of Airvi, Asha Bennett, told us how they're using AI to manage congestion. It's pretty cold right now. You can't help but notice the drop in temperatures. It seems to be what everyone's talking about. And it also seems like everyone is catching colds. So it got us thinking here in the Dubai Eye office, what is the link? Why, when it is cold, do you catch a cold? We asked a doctor for the definitive answer. And one year after the catastrophic earthquake in Syria and Turkey, we spoke to the Blue Crescent Aid Agency about the reality on the ground. Meanwhile, we also took a look at a worrying study out of the UK that suggests sports such as rugby and boxing are damaging for children and could even be considered a form of abuse because of the impact that they have on children's brains. We spoke to the lead author of that research and also to former England pro Matthew Tate, who works as the general manager of the Dubai Sevens. Plus, researchers at the world's biggest particle accelerator in Switzerland want to spend $15 billion, that's with a B, on a new machine to help them search for a particle that you can't even see. Professor Jose Ignacio Latore from Abu Dhabi's Technology Innovation Institute explained why it's important. And Chris McCarty brought us up to date with all our latest sporting news. Hello there. Welcome back to The Agenda. Okay, we are going to take a look now at um, a subject that I suppose will most affect people who have children, because I wonder whether you ever worry about uh, the sport that they're doing and whether or not it could potentially damage their brains. Well, a new study could give you serious cause for concern. It's it's really given me the heebie-jeebies uh, because both of my young boys play uh, rugby. They play a lot of rugby. And academics say that the sport has become a form of child abuse and should be banned among the under-18s. Um, and that is because parents, like me, don't understand the long-term risk of brain injuries caused by these types of sports. Um, as you can imagine, with two children who play a great deal of rugby, and, and, and there's a lot of families out here with children who play rugby, um, I thought it was an important topic to consider on the radio. And joining me now to talk through the findings is the lead author of the study. Uh, he's a professor of sport, Eric Anderson, from the University of Winchester in Britain. Uh, Professor Anderson, thank you so much for joining us on the line this morning from the UK. Tell me, how did you carry out this research? How did you come to this uh, conclusion? So what we've done is we've amalgamated all of the data on the different types of damage that are caused to children's brains. And, you know, that's that's a, a difficult task in itself because there's there's actually multiple forms of damage that are both short term and long term that are caused from the sub-concussive hits that occur in everyday practice, as well as from concussion itself. And then, of course, there's all the bodily injuries. And then the next thing we did is we examined the laws applicable in the United Kingdom 
to protecting children and United Nations uh, rights on the uh, Convention on the Human Rights of the Child, as well as the policies of sport organizations themselves. And we highlighted that embedded within these laws is the desire to protect children from unnecessary violence, from being hit, from their brains being shaken. And yet all of these things happen in sport. For example, in the in the sport of rugby, the rugby football union in this country says that, you know, it is physical abuse to hit a child. And ostensibly that's because of the damage that it can cause. But if the brain is hit on the rugby field or by an errant parent outside of the rugby field, the damage to the brain given equal G-force is the same. The brain doesn't care how it was damaged. The damage exists. So we started to suggest that because rugby, particularly uh, a well-played sport in many countries, but also combat sports like boxing, that structure violence into the game, right? Not accidental, but where violence is part of the game, that this was not consistent with laws that exist around child abuse. And then we turned our attention to consent. And I've got a lot of research highlighting that parents and coaches, they just have no idea what chronic traumatic encephalopathy is. They think that concussion is something that one can recover from. They have no idea that there's a relationship between this brain trauma and Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and other motor neuron diseases. And they they just live by this rule that, well, you know, I'd rather them doing this than playing video games. But we highlight that there's a very sensible solution here, and that is simply to move to touch rugby. It's faster. They get more exercise. It's more inclusive. And you don't get the brain trauma. So for us, it's quite literally a no brainer. Do you do you can you can you document a clear link between children who play rugby or box and get concussion and and then you know go on to develop problems in later life? Is there a is there medical research that that shows that that's the case? There's a great deal of medical research that shows that that is the case. And the largest medical institute in the world, the American National Institutes of Health, as well as the Centers for Disease Control, they both say that this is a cause and effect relationship. It's not correlation. It's cause and effect. It is so extreme, the form of dementia that develops as a result of playing collision or impact sports, we now see dementia in teenagers demented brains amongst teenagers. It's horrific. The form of dementia that it's causing is called CTE or chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And chronic traumatic encephalopathy hits people earlier than Alzheimer's. It hits them harder and it hits them with higher rates of depression and suicide, violence against women. It's been responsible for a large number of suicide amongst professional sport athletes. And then it also increases your chances of Alzheimer's. So, you know, it's just a horrific situation that we need to protect children from because parents just don't understand the devastation that they're rotting on parents' brains, on their children's brains, by having them play this supposedly healthy sport. Do you know, it, it's very, very difficult to, to hear this. And I can, 
I've got a nine-year-old and a ten-year-old, and I, I imagine like lots of people listening. Um, they play a lot of rugby. Their dad played a lot of rugby. You know, it's it's become part of the fabric of some people's family life, of some people's you know sporting life, school life. Do you? Do you think that it that, that the world is ready for for a sort of mind shift on this, or do you think it's going to take time? Oh, we are shifting, and we're shifting quite rapidly. Um, the this has been going on for about a decade now, and the participation rates in rugby are dropping dramatically because parents are hearing these news costs, you know, these news these news reports. Um, and there's a number of lawsuits underway in England. There are three hundred former professional rugby players who are suing World Rugby and the Rugby Football Union for the brain damage that they have for, you know, in, in you know, subjecting them to an occupational hazard that has left them with lifelong and life-ending injuries. In America, the National Football League has already paid out $1.2 billion to injured players. So, it is already happening. It's hitting multiple impact sports. We just now need to start talking about this in rugby because rugby is a far more concussive sport than American football. And that's because rugby players are, let's be honest, they're better athletes than American football players are. They're on the pitch for 80 minutes. There's no offense and defense like in American football where there's only 12 minutes of actual playing a game. So rugby has four times the concussion rate compared to American football. We know that American football players are suffering madly as a result of this disease. We now know that rugby players are doing the same. We also know that the longer you're in the sport, the worse the damage. And we also know that the damage is far worse for children your age than it is for adults because of their developing brains. So the answer here is Remove your kids from collision rugby immediately. Is there a middle ground uh, for these sports? I mean, and I ask this both both, uh, as a journalist and also personally, because, you know, once your children get into the sports, they love them. They, 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 They become part of their identity. There is no way to mitigate the damage of a tackle. The Rugby Football Union and other rugby bodies will try to say, we're tackling higher, we're tackling lower, we're teaching safe tackle. But that defies the laws of physics. A tackle in the sport of rugby means one person is running and they are stopped or they run into another person running the other way even worse. And the fact that they stop suddenly means that the brain keeps moving inside the skull, bashes around the skull, shears the neurons, causes the damage. And helmets do not mitigate this. Scrum caps do not mitigate this. In fact, research on both these products shows that what they do is they engender a sense of confidence and safety, a false sense of confidence and safety, and they make matters worse because people take bigger risks. And in American football, with a big heavy helmet on, you literally weaponize the head to become a more powerful instrument to cause damage. So there's no way to mitigate this. It's not within the laws of physics. And therefore, there is no middle ground. The only acceptable ground here to save a child's brain is to remove the intentional violence to that brain. Now, listen, I got it. It's part of the culture. But that culture is literally using children's brains 
as cannon fodder so that one in 10 or 100,000 can be selected for a national team. The minute a child enters any organized sporting program, it's designed to elevate and find out and you know raise them up to the next level to have a professional class. If we truly played this sport for the sake of health, teamship, learning other values, we would be playing tag rugby. There's no reason to play tackle. Uh, uh, one of the listeners, Paul, here has written in a message um, saying, can you ask how common these injuries are to children? Um, you know, how, how frequently, you know, you have a child who's played rugby and, and then ends up with a, a sort of brain injury. It, it, do we have statistics to that? We do indeed. And these statistics have come out by the rugby football union themselves. So take them with a grain of salt. But here's what we have. We have... of all injuries in rugby occurring in the tackle. And the most common injury at 52% is concussion. There are 6.8 concussions for children in rugby, which is more than for adults. And of those 6.8, there's 6.8 per 1,000 playing hours. So if you do the math on that, it comes down to a concussion for every 178 hours that a child plays. Now, that's cataloged in games, but of course, you know, there's scrimmages as well. Other research has shown that there's a 25% chance that any individual player will be concussed in one season of play. So four years of play, you're guaranteed a concussion. Now, that is horrible for the impact of concussion. One concussion can lead to greater dependence on the state, higher rates of incarceration, higher rates of depression, mental health problems, and suicidality. But that doesn't account for all of the hundreds or thousands of minor hits that children take, and that's what leads to this early dementia. So the, the, the answer is very simple. We know that this is an incredibly concussive sport. It's worse for children, and we know that it has very negative long-term outcomes in two capacities, both in terms of concussion and the daily minor hits that happen all the time. Professor Eric Anderson, thank you very much indeed for your time this morning here on the Agenda on Dubai 103.8. You've just been listening to the voice of Professor Anderson. He's the lead author of a study on the long-term impacts of rugby and boxing, for example. Uh, And he's a professor of sport from the University of Winchester in the United Kingdom. Thank you very much indeed for joining us this morning. Uh, It has certainly given me a huge amount of food for thought. I have two young boys They play rugby more than twice a week and they absolutely love it. But, um, you know, you have to sometimes change your views on things, don't you? Um, Professor Anderson, thank you very much for your time. Up next, we are going to be speaking uh, to the former England pro Matthew Tate. He's general manager of the Dubai Sevens and the Sevens Stadia here in the UAE. And um, it's going to be very interesting to get his views. Certainly lots of comments coming through at the moment on the text line. Uh, Paul uh, doesn't, well, Paul says, never heard so much nonsense in my life. Um, It'd be interesting to get more of your views. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Hello there. Welcome back to the show. This is The Agenda. Right, we are talking about... Um, a report that has sort of affected me really personally. So I'm sort of struggling to sort of stay, keep the keep the journalistic 
neutrality on this one. Um, it's a report that came out over the weekend. Uh, the top line is that rugby and boxing should be banned because they give children brain damage. Um, it is a hard-hitting headline. It carries on. Um, they suggest that, in fact, letting your children do boxing or rugby is uh, child abuse. And um, we've just spoken to the author of the report who says that the problem is, is that parents just don't understand the long-term risk of brain injuries caused by these sports. Um, Dr. Uh, Professor Eric Anderson also suggested uh, that children shouldn't be engaging with these sports uh, and he singled them out particularly because they're deliberately designed to encourage hard contact and in fact no one should be doing that until they're 18. Now one man who's never shied away from action on the rugby pitch is the former England pro Matthew Tate. Robson and Robson has passed the stricken daily. Tate's coming across. Robson! Oh, what? That was unbelievable. Matthew Tate heron along like he's still a teenager. It's one of the best try saving tackles I've ever seen. And I'm delighted to say Matthew, who is currently general manager of the Dubai Sevens and the Seven Stadia, joins me now on the line. Um, Matthew, hi. I don't know if you heard the, the the interview beforehand, but it was it was some pretty hard listening uh, for especially for a mum of two boys who absolutely love their rugby. Yeah, no, I, did, I didn't unfortunately. But I've just read read the article. Yeah, and of course. I'm, yeah. I'm also, also approaching it as a yes, a parent a parent of two boisterous eight and ten year old boys, and, and as, as an ex player. So I have probably a slightly different perspective than, than the academic perspective. Yeah, I mean, I'm all for rugby. I think it's brilliant. It gets the kids out. It gets them running around. I would prefer it a million times over to them sitting at home playing Fortnite. I think it gets them fit and healthy. My boys, you know, it gives them a sense of identity because they're good at it. You know, they feel great because they're good at it. Um, I mean, but a report like this, and I've just spoken to the author, it makes me feel like I'm, I'm being really irresponsible not pulling them out of it straight away. Yeah. I, do, I think, I mean, first and foremost, all contact sports have to acknowledge, and rugby is one of those that they're, they're far, far from perfect. But as long as my view is, say, as a parent, provided they are looking at ways of mitigating any of the risks that have been highlighted as much as possible within the age bracket that have been highlighted with, with from the report, then they have to be looked at in the context of the overall benefit um, of participating in the sport. To, to your point. You know, I'd, I would, I would much rather my boys were out participating in sport contact contact sports for all the, the mental and, and and physical benefits they they get from character building, the social skills that they develop, the friendships, the bonds, the all of those components, rather than being sat glued to glued to a screen. You know, globally, as well as as well as regionally, there's issues with childhood and, and teenage obesity, living a more sedentary lifestyle. Um, and I think it was the, you know, whether it's the, the inflammatory language used around grooming and child, child abuse, whether were the words that were used mm. in the article, that I kind of, I take, I take issue with, not least because it just feels that they're a little bit poor taste. To be perfectly honest, when there is, there are child being abused all over the world and, and, and suffering, um, in, in a kind of very real real context and then you know that's why we're having this conversation right because mm. that's the type of language that's been been used in the report but i think if it's looked outside of just 
that becomes the, the academic silo and looks at it from a holistic benefit to, to the child through their, their development. And that's the type of study I think that would be really, really interesting. Do you think that studies like this, you know, away from the language, which you're quite right, it does feel like it has been, you know, it's deliberately emotive language and it certainly worked. You know, this, the, the article has been widely read around the world. Do you think, nevertheless, that studies like this should make us reconsider the age at which children start the sort of contact element of the sport? For example, I know my boys played tag rugby for a really long time. Perhaps, you know, that should be pushed back more into the teens? Yeah, I mean, if, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm all for, for, for anything to be science-driven and science-led. And, and talking in the context of, of rugby here, there are numerous studies being carried out currently um, by World Rugby and, and other governing bodies across the various different age groups of the game um, to look at to look at the rules and regulations. And, and that differs very, very much from the, the grassroots game from the various different age groups all the way through to the, to the professional era. So if, if the science is, is dictating that and the, 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 the age at which children need to be exposed to contact at a safer level as possible needs to be raised, then, then, then absolutely there are various different forms that the game can be played in. But I, I, I do think that, for that physical component of, of the game is very, very important to the, to the the development of the character and physical development of the child, and that can't be overlooked. I think if we look at the, again, look at it from the holistic benefit perspective, and that's something I think has to be kind of taken in the context of this study. But um, if, if the science points to, to pointing tackle back in, into the teenage age groups, then you know absolutely it should be science led. Matthew, a great pleasure to have you join us on the line. Thank you very much for, for taking the time. Um, and also, we did ask for, for other people to come on to talk about this. And obviously, it is a difficult topic. So I really appreciate you. Um, you didn't shy away from the tackles and you certainly didn't shy away from the conversation either. So thank you very much indeed for your time. I really appreciate it. No worries. Thanks very much. Thank you. Matthew Tate there, former England pro uh, and, of course, general manager of the Dubai Sevens and the Sevens Stadia. Great to have him join us on the line. Um, and certainly it is a conversation to be had. Um, it's a conversation I'll be having with my husband when I get home this evening, that's for sure. Um, and I'd be really interested to get your reaction on this. I've already had a couple of messages coming through uh, saying, my goodness me, it makes us pause for thought. But... You know, what are you going to do if your children absolutely love the sport? Uh, Paul's got in touch and says, on average, according to the professor, uh, and assuming his research is correct, there's one concussion in approximately 170 hours of playing rugby. Paul thinks, uh, or I'm getting the impression from Paul that he thinks that that doesn't make it enough of a risk for it to be stopped or banned or described as child abuse. Um, And he says uh, that is not incredibly common, as he put it, about once in 150 matches where you're lucky if you ever play that many matches as a child. The game is what it is. There's always a risk. In football, you could easily break a limb or an ankle. In motor racing, you could crash and hurt yourself. In horse racing, you could fall off the horse. We either accept the risks of sport or we don't play there is a choice and those that play rugby accept it for what it is paul thank you very much for that much appreciated (music) top of everyone's i suppose go-to list of complaints 
is the traffic right now in Dubai. I think it's replaced... I think it's basically replaced property prices, hasn't it? I think you might stand around the water cooler and you go, oh, the traffic nowadays, it's bad, isn't it? Yeah, school run, nightmare. And while the Roads and Transport Agency is clearly working on the problem, I mean, here at the radio station, we get headlines on it all the time. And obviously, working in news, we're sort of quite aware of how many roads have been announced. The latest one, actually, is a new sort of road and bridge that's going to take you from Sheikh Zayed Road straight into Dubai Harbour. And we are actually going to speak to the RTA about that tomorrow. Um, But we're going to need more immediate solutions because, you know, busy and fast, though they are at building stuff here in the UAE, you know, it takes a couple of years, right, to build a big road or a bridge. And um, as a consequence... No one wants to live with two years of congestion. We're going to have to figure something out. And a couple of weeks ago, if you're listening to the agenda, you'll know that there was talk of dynamic pricing, dynamic road tolls as a strategy to bring down the number of cars on the roads at peak time. So ultimately, if you want to travel you know, at rush hour, then you're going to be charged more by Salek. Potentially, it's, it, you know, it's not, it's not happening yet. And it's fair to say that people weren't very impressed with the suggestion. But what if we could do something else? What if we could use artificial intelligence to guide the traffic around town and sort of even things out, make, make you know, use all the roads, you know, rather than just Sheikh Zayed, for example. Well, joining me now to discuss that option is the founder of a startup that is looking to eliminate traffic congestion and, of course, the associated pollution, because you have loads of cars sitting, you know, puffing out their exhaust and not moving anywhere, then it creates a really unpleasant environment. Asha Bennett is the CEO and founder of Evi, and he's also um, the CEO of Teva Electric Trucks. Pretty certain I might pronounce both of those company names incorrectly. Uh, so fortunately, we've got Asha in the studio to help us with it. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for hosting me. Appreciate it. Well, it's good to have you here. Tell me... Um, your sort of major focus now is this sort of congestion start AI startup. But how did you get into this field in the first place? So um, the company I founded almost 11 years ago, Teva Hydrogen Electric Trucks, and it makes us what it sounds like. We make trucks that have two energy systems on it. And we're based in the UK and we're type approved for all of Europe and in process of building and slowly selling more trucks. Um Because we have two energy systems, and in the original format, the second energy system was a very, very small diesel generator. Now it's already moved on to hydrogen, so it's completely zero emission. Uh, We had a system that was developed to adapt to the hotspots of pollutions in a city. Um, And then make sure you never use a diesel generator around that. And we did a nice program in the city of Leeds. We we put air sensors around the city, one on our truck, and we built those hotspots. And our truck automatically, through the cloud, uh, managed the software that adapted to that reality. So that led me to think, okay, it's nice to make our truck that is almost uh, 99% green, another half a percent green. Um, but what about all the other cars out there? So we came up with the concept of like in the UK, the ultra low emission zone or the clean air zone. And, but to make that virtual and adaptive. So they should be everywhere, not just in the random place where you put a ring of cameras. And that very fast led to our current focus, which is traffic congestion. It's so interesting that it started with pollution and air pollution rather than simply congestion. 
So um, in our vision, we're handling both. But when we focus first on tackling congestion, you get an immediate benefit on air pollution, as you just said. Uh, and then an additional focus later on, specifically on pollution, just as a marginal or continuing improvement. So we're focusing on the important part and the part that we feel not only in Dubai, <laughs> traffic congestion is pretty much a problem almost everywhere in the world at different levels. Um So I'm interested to know how the the tech works, because it's actually the reverse of what I thought. I imagined that your AI clever computers would live in some sort of nerve center and that they would send out instructions to the cars. But in fact, it almost feels like it's the other way that each vehicle has its own sort of nerve center. So... um We do look at it as a global solution or a region-wide or city-wide solution. And let's just take a very fast understanding that it is now well known that building more roads doesn't usually help ending congestion. In fact, Dubai, um, it's considered a marvel of modern uh, urban planning. It has an amazing road network, great public transportation, and yet it is so congested. So just building more and more roads is now well understood not to help. And the reason is when you build a new road, it induces demand to start filling it and it just never works. So the best way to understand it is we're bringing the concept from the London congestion zone or the Stockholm congestion zone um, where you pay a fee. And if you go into in London case, if you go in from 7 a.m. to 6 p.m., you pay a 15 pound fee. Now, that solution helps, of course, but it's a bit of a blunt solution. I mean, congestion doesn't magically end at 6 p.m. It doesn't magically end at this uh, perimeter of cameras designed 21 years ago. In fact, it pushes the congestion out. And it doesn't work with the concept that congestion is shifting and changing in its shape and moving around. So we take a citywide approach, but then we work with each uh, vehicle individually. And we're adding... um, Common uh, economic factors. We're adding pricing, a little bit of a, a congestion pricing, like in London, um, but we've also added congestion rewarding. We see it as a big problem, so we want to approach it from uh, multiple ways. Maybe I'll give an example. So uh, let's say you're late afternoon, um, you want to leave your office in DIFC, drive back home to Marina. We're going. The first thing is we're going to measure the negative impact of that trip that you're about to take. If it doesn't have a lot, then we say, off you go, enjoy your trip. If it does have a negative impact, then we want to start giving you alternatives. I'll just take a short hiatus on the mathematics of congestion very briefly. Congestion, so on a typical road, if there's one car or up to about 85% capacity of that road, it's going to free flow. But then every additional vehicle, it really builds up congestion very, very fast. It, it you know, goes from linear to very fast exponential. The flip side of that is we only have to remove a few vehicles tactically from the choke points to get back to free flow. So now we have to focus on a percentage of the vehicles. And we're, we call it influence. We're not forcing anyone. We're giving you an option. So how do we influence you not to be there? Well, consider delaying your trip. Consider taking public transportation. Consider taking an alternative uh, route. All of those help. Having a few less vehicles at the choke point, and we all win by by uh, free flow of traffic. How do we influence you? Because, you know, right, right now, how are we all doing it? T- today, we all do what's called selfish routing. We pull out Google Maps or Waze or whatever, 
which is basically there's a big mess out there of congestion, as we often see in Dubai. Within that mess, what saves me a few minutes versus an alternative? Yeah. That doesn't help lower congestion. That just helps me a little bit. Now we're coordinating it. So a few people delay their trips and suddenly uh, or, or go to public transportation and we will uh, reward you. We'll, be, we'll make it worth your time to do that. Um, oh, how? How? It, it, is by it, pricing. Oh, by it pricing. is by so pricing. So if you want to go straight through, um, if, it's, if we're focusing on Sheikh Zayed, then, then we might add a congestion fee, which would be in addition to Salik, if there's also Salik. So let's say 30 dirhams. And that's your choice to take that road. But those 30 dirhams are helping uh, reward others who are willing to inconvenience yourself and take alternatives. So we're just pricing out uh, the need of uh, congestion. And... It's And because we're doing it to 100,000 simultaneous trips and each one is giving a very specific solution, we're not going to offer a UPS delivery driver, go take public transportation, of course. Then uh, that's why you need the power of AI to get this right. And it's very important to us that everyone wins. Like everyone wants a city with much lower congestion. And congestion is not just an inconvenience. It is lowers the GDP of a region. I've heard rumors it's hurting tourism uh, thing. Uh, it, 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 it's soul crushing. It's a waste of oh, time. Oh, it drives us all up the wall. It, it means we it, complain about it all the time. It makes conversation boring. <laughs> it delays the availability of emergency vehicles. There's nothing good about congestion. It's just that we're not managing the roads uh, perfectly because we're not communicating with the different users. So it's like based at the London Congestion Zone concept, but at a citywide level and at, at every trip. Okay, so does everyone have to sign up for it to make it work? So, um, would you imagine the government making us all sign up for it? Look, we because they can do that here, and no, no one, <laughs> it'll just happen. We, we we take our so we are yeah we're registered in Delaware, but Dubai is our new home and loving it here. We just finished a three months. Uh, program with the city of Dubai and MIT developing, accelerating um, uh, startups. And we we don't have to have everyone on the system, but okay. then there's a problem of equity and fairness. But it's basically you have different levels of interaction with the system. So if you volunteer to be more involved, you will get a lot more rewards. So that could be free parking. Uh, the days that you're supposed to free pay congestion zone, you won't, uh, fees you won't all the way to sky uh, you know sky reward miles or or free cups of coffee if we're asking you to delay your trip we'll say here's a cup of coffee delay your trip you know we need you 20 minutes and that helps uh, thing. so there's a lot of different uh, things but um ultimately to some extent it is we are working for the city with the city it's not us independently um we're just b giving the city a great solution that doesn't include years of building more roads billions of dirhams of building more roads um it, it's a newer thing we think ultimately dubai can be the first city in the world to have tackled and won traffic congestion with the power of ai i like it I like it as an idea. Um, I've got 30 seconds left with you, possibly less, because this conversation has been far too interesting. Um, what stage are you at? Um, although we developed the, the early technology and tested it on the trucks of my other company, I'm, I'm now, uh, we, we decided it's a different business, so we spun it out. Uh, it's completely independent, and I'm focusing most of my time uh, on it. But we're a bit early stage, though, um, in the world of AI development, uh, timelines are quite accelerated. We should have a proof of concept uh, later in the year, and maybe we could go live somewhere in 2025.
Sounds incredibly interesting. Asha Bennett, CEO and founder of Airvy, also the CEO of Tiva Electric Trucks. Thank you so much for joining me in the studio. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's been great. It's definitely food for thought. I would love to get your reaction to it. If you're listening to this now, what do you think? Would you be happy? Would it work for you? 4001. Or you can WhatsApp me on 04871-5500. I like the idea of being encouraged to delay my trip with a free cup of coffee. I think... I think that could work for me. I, you know, in other situations, I wouldn't be able to do it, but I think it could definitely encourage me to stay in the office for an extra 10 minutes to avoid the traffic. What do you think? Hello there. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing? Um, you might be able to hear my voice slightly. I am slightly coming down with a cold and it's because it's freezing. Um, I know I've been in Dubai for about nine years now. I grew up in the UK. Normally, you know, if it drops below 18 degrees, you're like, this is balmy if you grew up in the UK. But nine years now, and I'm afraid I'm I'm cold. I'm having to wear socks in bed. Um, I'm, I'm in all the woolies. I don't like it very much. I'm feeling a bit grumpy. Um, and, you know, it did drop to near freezing at Jebel Jace over the weekend, 3.4 degrees Celsius. And it seems like everyone is also catching cold. And I promise that this wasn't linked to us doing the topic this morning, but but certainly Jen came in this morning saying that she reckons she's coming down with something. I feel like I'm coming down with something. And it got us all thinking here at Dubai Eye, what is the link? Why, when it is cold, do you catch a cold? And is there a link? You know, does it exist or is it just an old wives' tale? Well, we wanted to find out. And the great thing about being on the radio is that you can. You could just go out and you can find yourself a doctor, which is exactly what producer Jen did for us. And I'm delighted to say I'm now joined on the line by Dr. Srikanth Padmanaban, who's a specialist in emergency medicine um, at the Speciality Hospital Al Nada. Uh, doctor, I think you're probably overqualified for this question by the sounds of it. But thank you so much for joining me on the line. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Okay. So is it true? And when you're cold, are you more likely to catch a cold? Yes, that is definitely true. Uh, cold, flu-like illnesses and other illnesses related to the lungs are more likely to spread during the winter months. Okay. This is mainly because uh, people tend to stay indoors in the colder regions of the world. And in the more warmer regions like Dubai, people tend to mingle and meet each other more often when the climate is uh, cooler. And this allows the viruses to pass on more easily from one person to another. Okay, so it's a question of contagion then, rather than your body being more susceptible to catching a cold when you're cold. It is a combination of both. So the first line of defense against catching a cold is the nose itself. And research has shown that if the temperature drops by about 5 degrees, the power of the nose to ward off infections also drops. So here, when the difference between the summer months and the winter months is quite dramatic in Dubai. And definitely, uh, people's ability to ward off infections during the colder months is lesser. Okay, this is, I mean, this is very encouraging for me that, that it's not just an old wives' tale, that it is a fact. So when I tell my children to go and put on a jumper, I am actually giving them good, good advice. What, I mean, obviously, having a, having a cold is not a big deal. But what about more serious infections? What would be your recommendation to avoid more serious infections over this winter period? My main recommendation would be to get the yearly influenza shot. Uh, the influenza vaccine has proven to 
reduce the number of people who get influenza, which is one of the more serious uh, types of getting a cold, in fact. And uh, the vaccine also, if you get influenza despite the vaccine, then you are likely to have a milder disease. And the vaccine has shown that when people do get influenza despite all this, the number of times they get hospitalized because of disease is dramatically less in those who have uh, gotten the shot. So I would recommend that everybody should get their yearly influenza shots without fail. And this is particularly true for people who are very old uh, because they are, their immunity is uh, a bit lesser than the adult population. This is also good for very small kids. Again, their immunity is immature, so the influenza vaccine helps them more. And people who smoke, people who have diabetes, people who have other lung problems, long-term lung problems, they all benefit maximally from the influenza vaccine. So my first recommendation would be to get the influenza vaccine without fail every year. Uh, a new vaccine comes out around August or September of every year. That would be the best time to get the vaccine, but it is never too late. You can get the vaccine even now and benefit from it. Dr. Srikanth Padmanaban, thank you so much for joining us on the radio today to uh, both answer a sort of question that I had and also give us a good, solid advice for avoiding infection this winter season. Dr. Srikanth Padmanaban there, specialist in emergency medicine at the Speciality Hospital, Al Nada. Hello there. Welcome back to the show. Right. It is time for us to look back slightly because one year ago exactly at uh, 4.17 their time, an earthquake measuring 7.8 on the Richter scale struck both southern and central Turkey and northern and western Syria. I'm sure you remember it. We had extensive coverage here on Dubai Eye 103.8 and the devastation that that earthquake and, and the, you know, the following earthquakes, of which there were many, and many of them were almost as strong, was almost beyond human comprehension. We had uh, the death toll just rose and rose. In the end, it was found that more than 60,000 people had been killed. Many were asleep in their beds um, when the earthquake first hit. And in total, an area the size of Germany was flattened. Now, one year on, people are, as you can imagine, still struggling to rebuild their lives. But we wanted to find out a little bit more about the situation on the ground. And I'm delighted to say I'm joined now by Heather Sonia Una, who's a Programs and Partnerships Manager at the International Blue Crescent Relief and Development Foundation. Now, they work in both Syria and in Turkey. And we actually spoke to a representative from the organisation in the immediate aftermath of those earthquakes. So it's lovely to speak to you again. Heather, thank you for joining us on the line. Tell me, uh, looking back 12 months ago, what was the impact of the earthquake on your operations? Good morning. Thank you for having me. And thank you for giving a moment to focus on the people and communities still grappling with the effects of the earthquake a year later. Initially, the earthquake impacted our operations, but as we have a heavy prevalence in the area, we were able to respond immediately. Within minutes, we were offering hot soup and blankets, opening our doors, opening our community centers to people who needed support and help. And we've just continued our support from that moment on. Now, I know that for, for some of your staff, for many of your staff, this was a very personal tragedy because, of course, you were living and working in the very areas that were really badly hit. That's right. 
IBC was incredibly fortunate in that we didn't lose any of our valued staff members. However, many of our staff members lost their homes, family members, their communities. Affected personnel were given time off and time to heal and recover, but many chose to work relentlessly around the clock to serve their communities. These are places where they grew up, they spent their lives with these people, and they had a sense of loyalty to their childhood neighborhoods. So what is the situation on the ground now, 12 months after the tragedy? Well, the landscape of destruction remains virtually unchanged even a year later. The sheer number of damaged buildings that need to be demolished and the vast amounts of debris that still need to be cleared away, even to this day, remain. And it's hard to comprehend still how much work needs to be done. People are still very much living in temporary housing, sometimes in container homes, sometimes in tents adjacent to their homes or on their properties. It's very, very difficult. In just one of the camps that we operate, we have 440 container homes and they are still fully occupied. So that's thousands and thousands of people in just one of our camps. So is the reality that no new homes have been built yet? It's going very slowly. Streets have been cleared. Transportation is easier. We see bits of community coming back. Schools are operational as well as clinics and hospitals. But it's very, very slow. And I can only imagine the sort of the aftermath, the the mental toll of the of the earthquakes on, on people. Because the thing is, is that it wasn't just one earthquake. They kept on coming and coming and coming. And I think that that must have made it even harder for people to start the recovery process. You're absolutely right. These wounds, these losses are deeply personal. People lost their children, their babies, their spouses and parents. Whole generations of families were lost. So now the bulk of our programming really focuses on providing psychosocial support to help individuals cope with a whole host of mental and emotional issues like PTSD, anxiety, depression. It's not uncommon to hear of people who do not want to sleep inside or cannot live in multi-story buildings. Is aid still coming through? I know that, it, you know, it, particularly here in the UAE, we heard of an acceleration of, of aid contributed to both Syria and Turkey. Has, has that enthusiasm kept flowing for, as far as the rest of the world is concerned? Yes, aid continues to flow in and our programming is just as robust. However, it's changed. Instead of delivering just food and hygiene packets, we're now focused on recovery. As I mentioned earlier, providing comprehensive mental health support, particularly to children and youth. Now we're also looking at livelihood programming. We have a very exciting program where we teach people how to build homes and then they have the opportunity to build their own home alongside a more experienced construction worker. And hopefully they will be able to find work in the construction sector during the rebuild phase. And we have similar projects in Syria. We've helped to rebuild wells. We're providing housing supplies for building new homes and repair. Very encouraging to hear there of the work that's being done there by the International Blue Crescent Relief and Development Foundation. Heather, Una, thank you very much indeed for your time. Heather is Programs and Partnerships Manager, uh, just marking one year since uh, those tragic earthquakes in both Syria and Turkey. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Looking at a science story now because researchers at the world's biggest particle accelerator in Switzerland 
want to build an even bigger super collider. They're hoping to discover uh, new particles and in the process do nothing less than revolutionise physics. Now, if approved, the construction of the device would cost $15 billion dollars. So is it worth the hefty price tag? Joining me now to discuss it is high energy physicist Professor Jose Ignacio Latore, who is chief researcher of the Quantum Research Centre at Abu Dhabi's Technology Innovation Institute. Thank you so much for your time, sir. Tell me, what actually is the current Large Hadron Collider actually used for? Because I think a lot of people have no real understanding of that. Well, it, uh, the LHC, uh, it's the Large Hadron Collider, is the largest experiment in the planet. It's a unique experiment. It's the only experiment that is exploring the ultimate uh, composition of matter in the smallest uh, uh, level that we can probe. So at the moment, uh, LHC is refining the measurements on the Higgs, the Higgs particle, it may be familiar to some people, and uh, it is just uh, gaining more and more precision because the energy is limited. You cannot go further with this machine. This is what is going on now. So the Higgs boson, a special sort of new particle that was properly discovered in 2012, <clears throat> although it was theoretically, you know, it was a theoretical idea before then. Um, it was a moment of huge excitement for physicists. But, but why... Yeah. Do we need to discover, as human beings, these these tiny particles? You know, how will it help us? I do think uh, that uh, understanding nature is the uh, ultimate goal of humans. Uh, none of us, honestly, work uh, on on particle physics or any other field of quantum computation. Myself, because it will produce something. Okay. You, the fact that it is useful is just a consequence that, that you're doing something really, which is amazing. No? Uh, like we are doing now with quantum computers, we are controlling matter at the ultimate level. But when Einstein uh, produced uh, general relativity, uh, he never thought it would use for the GPS that you use in your car, no? that the satellites are like 30 satellites in orbit were atomic clocks of precision of, of one part in 10 to the 13 send their signals and you have to correct for general relativity. So this is the idea. You explore the unknown, you discover, you, you go beyond the limits. Then naturally we will use that in the future. This is for sure. I can guarantee you that. So there is some, um, conversations going on, shall we say, some intrigue around the cost of the machine. Um, $15 billion, that's just the cost to construct it. It would be a massive, I mean, literally out of the world size ring, huge ring. Um, you know, there are arguments that maybe that 15 billion would be better spent on other ideas, for example, you know, the ideas that would help solve climate change, that type of thing. Uh, you, I agree that uh, you, you can do many things with the same amount of money, but I don't think that those things are exclusive. We are spending a lot of money in uh, understanding our, the climate, okay? And we are spending a lot of money in health, right? so understanding how to generate uh, new drugs. Uh, we are spending a lot of money in training artificial intelligence. So this is not... Uh, exclusive. I think that we, we need all these pieces. 
So indeed, it is very expensive, but uh, this is a plan to go up to the year 2070 and divided by all the countries in the world that participate at CERN. It's a unique experiment. It's, it's uh, say, 1 billion per, per country and divided by years. So the number is huge when you put it together. But when you understand that this is an endeavor for, for 40 years, I don't think it is that much. Oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry. I'm so sorry. I've got to. Um, I, it's always the same. Whenever I, I speak to you, I could always talk for hours. There's so many more questions I have. But sadly, we do need to go uh, to the news now. Otherwise, I'll get into terrible trouble. Uh, you've been listening to the voice there of Professor Jose Ignacio Latore. He's chief researcher of the Quantum Research Center at Abu Dhabi's Technology Innovation Institute. Thank you very much, as always, for your time, sir. It is sports time. Our editor, Chris McCarty, has sent through this report with all the latest headlines. Well, a very good morning to you, Georgia. Happy Tuesday. And yes, as always with me in the mornings, I find myself in transit. An awful lot of people to see, not enough hours in the day. But let's get to the sport and let's start with last night's Premier League clash between Brentford and Manchester City. With Liverpool, the table toppers losing at Arsenal on Sunday, an opportunity for Manchester City to close the gap to two points points at the top of the table with a game in hand and they did just that. They actually fell behind in this one but a hat-trick from Phil Foden, the young Englishman who's had a bit of an in-and-out season. He came to the fore in real style last night. A hat-trick, a first for Phil Foden in senior football. That good enough to take the champions, as I say, to level with Arsenal in second. Two points buying Liverpool at the top of the table and crucially, they have that game in hand. You'd be a very brave man or woman to bet against Manchester City now going on and clinching what would be a fourth successive league title. As for the footballing action tonight, there's three FA Cup ties. There's a decent tie over in Germany in the German Cup between Bayer Leverkusen and Stuttgart. But let's be frank about it, the big one, Asian Cup semi-final action. We're down to the last four over in Qatar and it will see Jordan making their first ever appearance in the last four they'll take on Jurgen Klinsmann's South Korea, they haven't been convincing in this campaign so far have South Korea but they have found ways to win, they've found ways to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat and that's a good habit to be in, especially in knockout football, so Jordan taking on South Korea, that one off at 7pm and then tomorrow evening the second semi-final that sees Iran take on the host Qatar again from 7pm. So that gets you bang up to date with the football. I guess the cricketing story from yesterday, India levelling up the series. A 106 run victory over England to level up that five match test series. Jasper Boomrah, he was the hero of the hour. Nine wickets over the two innings. Six in the first, three in the second and he, not for the first time in his career, proving to be the difference. Big day of action down in Abu Dhabi. We now talk tennis. The Mubadla Abu Dhabi Open is in full swing. Emma Raducanu, she delighted the crowds last night. She came through in straight sets against Marie Buskova. 6-1, 6-4. Today, well, all eyes on Naomi Osaka, the four-time Grand Slam champion. She's had her issues, well-publicized mental health issues. She's become a mother as well. So she's looking to get back into the groove somewhat. She takes on the American Daniel Collins. 
That should be a good one. That's slated for a 2.30 start this afternoon down at the Zayed Tennis Complex in the nation's capital. Tickets are still available with Badla abudabiopen.com forward slash tickets. So if you're at a loose end this week into the weekend, then you know what to do. Head on down that WTA 500 event with some fantastic players on the show. So that gets you back up to date. With all of your sport this Tuesday, Georgia, it's always lovely to catch up with you. Hopefully, and I promise you, I will join you in studio one day soon. It's just that, well, it's not enough hours in the day. I started this by bemoaning that fact. I'll finish it. Simply not enough hours in the day. I'm off to another meeting. I'll catch up with you tomorrow. Cheers, Georgia. Editor Chris McCarty, always in a car, driving somewhere. He is the busiest man in sport here in the UAE. Right, uh, huge thanks to him, though. And you can catch him again, of course, on your airwaves from 5pm this afternoon with your drive time show off script. The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.